to Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. I'm your host, Laura. If you check out my Instagram from the past week at Colored Red Podcast, I have some photos on there of a trip that I took up to Victor, Colorado. And I was really lucky enough to be able to stay in the Black Monarch Hotel, which is this little Airbnb up there built into an old Victor, Colorado building. All of the rooms in this hotel are themed for some creepy or just plain weird people like H.H. Holmes and Nikola Tesla. And one thing about Victor is that there is a ton of history there and there are a ton of really cool buildings to go around there and look at. And the mountains that are surrounding Victor are full of hundreds, and I mean literally hundreds, of old mines. And you can actually take hikes and go around and check out those old mines. The town has a number of small little museums as well. And one thing that struck me was it has a lot of the old architecture and houses from the late 1800s and early 1900s still intact. In fact, the entire town has this very bizarre vibe to it. And I'll explain some of the weirder happenings in the town and its history for this episode today. My sources today include the Victor Lowell Thomas Museum, the Victor Heritage Society, and Wikipedia. Victor's one of those smaller Colorado towns that was totally off of my radar. Come to find out, it used to be a very bustling and populated little town, which at one point was a major site of the series of labor strikes in Colorado associated with the Colorado Labor Wars. And before I get to Victor's involvement in the labor wars, I want to give some perspective on what Victor was like towards the end of the 1800s as a kind of hidden but incredibly influential little town in the Rockies. This is a letter written by a woman named Mrs. Hattie Westover when she first visited Victor, and this was later published in the Greeley Tribune on January 30th, 1896. I have been surprised in several things relating to this place. It is much larger than I expected, containing between 6,000 and 7,000 people. There are 13 blocks of solid business fronts, with, of course, a large percentage of saloons and gambling houses. They tell me the town has been duly surveyed and laid out in town lots. The houses, however, are set hit and miss with a seeming disregard for God's or man's laws. Everything is new, from the houses down to children's toys, which leads me to calculate how many families have unloaded all their old stuff on the second-hand men to the benefit of the Victor Furniture Dealers. All of the houses are made level by placing them either fore or aft on stilts. And buying a building lot is much like buying a slice off of a toboggan slide. But there is this satisfaction, if my neighbor across the street can look down on me from lofty heights, anything in the way of trash, which I may be pleased to throw out of my back door, goes rolling down into the front doorway of the woman who lives still lower down than I do in the alley. Two rooms are considered in abundance for a house. The size of one's family cuts no figure in the case. Water is brought around in the regulation water wagon. The Presbyterian and Roman Catholic churches are in the lead, already having churches. The Methodists are erecting a church building, and the others hold services wherever they can rent a hall. I climbed the mountain and gazed on the outside of the Independence Shaft House, where millions of dollars worth of gold lie uncovered, awaiting the pleasure of the owner to be taken out. 
Then we visited the Portland, which joins the Independence, and we really did visit the inside of the shaft house and saw them hoisting every three minutes a ton of water. The husband of my next-door neighbor was one of the three killed in a theater shooting affray the night before we got here. And what made it still worse, she witnessed the whole affair. Since coming here, I have seen five funerals, but this does not argue anything against the climate as four of them died with their boots on. I will now tell you what I like in Victor. I like the cheerful expression on the faces, the hurried business-like walk that every man assumes. I like the song of the hammer, which I never fully appreciated before. I like the rush and roar, which is almost constant, of the long freight trains, but best of all, I haven't heard anybody say hard times. So there's that letter. The theater shooting that's referred to in the letter happened in a theater called the Union Theater of Varieties. The theater that currently stands in the town is called the Isis Theater, and many say that it's likely not the site of the original theater. So on a cold January day in 1896, and some people do say that it was actually New Year's Eve 1895, but anyway, this is a story just right out of a spaghetti western or something to that degree. It's it's quite ridiculous. A man named Mr. Smith barged into the theater during a performance and began accusing one of the four men seated at a table of being the leader of a gang of toughs who had it out for the theater. And after a bunch of words were exchanged, the man accused of being a gang leader, Mr. Pasco, pulled out his revolver and shot at Mr. Smith, shooting him through the chest and head several times. Mr. Smith fell to his knees at the first shot and immediately began shooting back at Mr. Pasco, shooting him through the heart. And as both men sank dead to the floor, their bodies ending up on top of one another, four of the performers on the stage also drew pistols and just began shooting wildly into the crowd at random. And people in the crowd also drew guns and began firing them wildly up onto the stage, sending bullets into the stage and surrounding furniture and people. And in this ridiculous commotion, the gas was turned off to the theater, maybe as someone's attempt to stop the shooting, and this sunk the entire theater into pitch blackness because all of the lights were lit by gas. And all of the artists on stage and patrons continued shooting at each other in the pitch dark. Women were screaming. Shots were ringing out. There was one woman on stage in full costume and tights, a pistol in each of her hands. And she was had them at her hips and she's emptying both of them into the audience as quickly as she can. After a while, or maybe because bullets actually literally ran out, the firing stopped. The gas was turned back on, and the horrible scene was now lit up for everybody to view. Twenty men lay wounded on the ground. No women were apparently actually shot, including the woman that was shooting on the stage. And one man was in the agonizing throes of death and ended up dying later on. The three men total dead were George E. Smith, Tom Pascoe, and George Ferguson. Many accounts insist that every man in the theater was drunk, but others say that that wasn't the case at all. And the men accused of being a gang of toughs were men who were later planning on going and relocating mining claims because apparently due to heavy mining activity in the town, 
claim relocation, theft, etc. was kind of an issue and it resulted in a lot of fighting, but a lot of accounts painted Victor as a relatively peaceful place that was kind of free of shootings and brawls associated with mining activity. George Smith ended up being buried in Cripple Creek, but his body was exhumed soon after so that his widow could find out what bullet actually killed him because she suspected it was from a third party in a theater. But supposedly they did match the bullet to a gun held by George Ferguson, one of the other men involved in the initial confrontation. George Smith's widow supposedly retained the bullet as a souvenir. So creepy or badass or both, you decide. Only a few years later in 1899, a fire broke out in the city of around 18,000 people at that time. And within five hours, the entire business district of Victor was destroyed. But it actually gave residents an opportunity to build brand new stone buildings and main city center hotels. And many residents at the time actually said the fire just basically did some bulldozing for them that probably needed to be done. Some people credited the fire with turning Victor from a mining shack camp into basically a real town. And yeah, people packed up and just left and never returned, but it also just kind of put it on the map as a real city at the time. But Victor really wouldn't keep its reputation as normally nonviolent mining camp for long because during these years, there were a number of disputes going on between mining laborers who had formed unions and the owners of these mines. Disputes were started over things like mining operators wanting to extend the workday from 8 to 10 hours without additional pay. Um, arguments over general wages, conditions of the mines, worker housing, etc. Because, you know, as it was the case in many of these old-time factories and mines, the companies built the town around the mine itself and the workers all lived in them free of charge and they actually started to do things in pueblo and other cities where they'd basically have pay their workers with fake bucks that were distributed by the mines and they could only use these bucks at the stores they couldn't use any regular cash and everything was just highly inflated in price and it was just this huge scam so there was a lot of fighting over that too there's also a national and Colorado-based employers movement going on, which was essentially a capitalist aim at unions and the belief that they had way too much power. At one point, the Pinkerton Detective Agency even had undercover spies placed within the Western Federation of Miners to try to report back to distant mining company owners about union activities. But the Colorado labor wars began when miners of towns in the Colorado Rockies, including Durango, Idaho Springs, and Cripple Creek in Victor, all began striking for better hours, better pay, among other demands. Denver-based mill workers also went on strike during this time. In Cripple Creek, tensions got high as the National Guard was sent in under the command of Sherman Bell, a man described as overbearing and self-conceited, who had just returned from the Spanish-American War with a chip on his shoulder and a hunger for more war. And despite Pinkerton reports that Union workers had mostly calmed down, thousands of rounds of ammunition and dozens of troops descended upon Cripple Creek. Riots and gun battles broke out, and the Colorado Governor Peabody began um, state-backed deportations of Italians and other immigrants using the Italian Secret Service. 
But in Victor, in November of 1903, a man named Albert Horsley, who for whatever reason was known as Harry Orchard, planted a bomb on the sixth level of the Vindicator Mine, hoping to kill some of the non-union mine workers. Because what essentially the mines would do was when they were striking, they would ship in workers to replace the union workers as some attempt to... I don't know, cripple the union. So anyway, he's trying to kill these non-union mine workers. And apparently he didn't read the schedule, though. And no mine workers were actually present. Instead, two union members, Superintendent McCormick and Shift Boss Beck, stepped into the area as the bomb exploded and both of them were killed. Not a single non-union worker member um, was killed. And it's been noted by historians that violence was not really a union-approved angle. But it was the angle of the Cripple Creek Miners Association, the Citizens Alliance, and the local militia. And there is some question as to whether or not Harry Orchard was kind of a patsy hired by other forces at play, such as the Western Federation of Miners and the conspiracy surrounding the Pinkerton Agency, which was that they were basically recruiting street toughs and patsies and fall men and goons to incite violence and create this narrative under the direction of mine owners. And there are several witness statements suggesting that detectives and spies were placed in Union and Western Federation meetings to incite violence and push these narratives. So if you imagine that kind of old bit where there's some dude like changing hats in the background of a meeting, like, yeah, we should incite violence, and yeah, we should do riots, and just he's kind of moving around the background. That's kind of what the Pinkerton agent people were doing at these meetings. Eventually, Orchard and five men from the Western Mining Federation were tried for attempting to blow up the mine, but the jury ended up being hung. Orchard did, however, confess to murdering Idaho Governor Frank Studenberg, who apparently had dirt on Orchard and the other conspiracies of the various mining groups, and Harry Orchard spent the rest of his life in an Idaho prison. I think you can still visit the old Western Federation of Miners Union Hall in Victor and still see the bullet holes in the walls from all of the brawling that occurred there over the labor wars. The Federation of Miners changed its name to the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers, and they eventually merged with United Steel Workers. So that's that. Victor is currently undergoing um, a lot more renovations, including the Black Monarch Hotel, which is by far the most attractive of the bunch, and there's a bunch of other hotels up there as well. And the fun thing about the Black Monarch, though, is that you can do a completely contact-free check-in and wear a mask and basically just be alone the entire time and go on the many wonderful hikes around there. There's also a really cool... um, reservoir up there with great fishing that you can basically drive down this dirt road to and you know make sure your your tires are doing well if you want to drive down that so check out those creepy old mines go on some mining tours maybe and yeah it's a good time so that's all for this month's historical episode i'll be back at you at the end of the month with a larger episode so until next time stay sane